Hello and welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we continue with the Battle of Spionkop, and as you'll hear, it's a battle that horrified those who took part with its hand-to-hand fighting, terrible artillery barrages, and the massacre of British troops who'd been trapped on the summit of Spionkop, where there was no escape from the Boer Moors around. It's also a tale of confusion, which is often what happens in war. One of the people who we followed is Denis Rates. He published his book called Commando in 1902. It's a remarkable story about a remarkable life. One of the major ironies is that Denis Rates ends up fighting in the First World War on the British side on the Western Front. But in January 1900, he had tried to take time off back home at Pretoria. However, his father, who was in the Transvaal government, had told him to head back to the front, back in Natal, as the British were about to attack. Denise Rates writes, I reached our camp at Ladysmith on January 23rd to find that volunteers were being called for to go to the Tugela, and I now heard that General Buller had moved the English army 25 miles upstream from Colenso in preparation for another big-scale attack in the vicinity of Sibion Corp. Already they were hammering away at different points seeking a weak spot. He was right. The British had conducted a number of diversionary attacks. We heard last week about Dundonald, who was dispatched by General Buller to test the Boer defences. The other main player in this terrible drama was General Warren, who was to lead men who'd assault Spion Corp. But Dundonald had crossed the Mati together at Wagons Drift with 1,500 mounted men, about a kilometre away from Trichard's Drift, where Warren's force would cross. Dundonald was not unscathed. One of his men was dragged off his horse and drowned as the Tegela was in flood. Buller had ordered Dundonald to defend Warren's left flank by moving forward. But both he and Dundonald didn't realise that Warren was going to spend three days in what the latter called dress rehearsals. I explained partly last week what this meant. Warren had a theory in warfare, which we now know is complete baloney. The delay before a battle was vital in order, he said, to have... A dress rehearsal. That's what Warren believed, and after the Boer War he defended his actions, saying, One had to practice and rehearse for cricket, football, golf and theatricals. Why not for war? He wanted the two sides, the British and Boers, to get acquainted before the big battle. This was madness. Once again, Monty Python or The Goon Show would be the only way to parody this kind of lunacy. Initiative and surprise are the watchwords of all forms of action, even in business and sport, let alone warfare. So Dundonald then launched an attack on the Boers, believing that Warren was going to do the same on the 18th of January. Little did he know that Warren would only begin his assault on the 23rd of January. Dundonald was heading to a homestead near Tabanyama Hill called Acton Homes, which lay on the main road to Ladysmith. Warren had then ordered him to send 500 of the Hussars cavalry and South African light horse back across the river to protect Warren's oxen. Another gobsmacking moment, highly trained shock troops protecting grazing beasts instead of fighting a war. I described what happened next in a sentence last week, but here it requires more detail. Dundonald is on the main road, near a large mountain close to Ladysmith. The Boers have no idea, and 300 men and a Boer commander ride along the road to bolster the defences. Dundonald ambushes them. Winston Churchill was with Dundonald and filed his report for the Morning Post newspaper. 
The Carabiniers and Lighthorse held their fire until Scots walked into their midst and then let drive at the main body 300-yard range. There was a sudden furious snapping fusillade. The Boer column stopped paralyzed, then broke and ran for cover. They left behind them 20 dead and 24 prisoners. Dundonald now held a strong position near the road on kopjes or small rocky hills. Warren has been testing and rehearsing and waiting for his logistic support now for well over a week. The Boers, as Raids points out, were ready, but had only just been reinforced at Trichard's drift, the numbers rising from 600 to 7,000, only because Warren had been obsessed with his dress rehearsal. So, on the evening of 23rd of January, Warren orders Woodgate finally to lead a column of 2,000 men of the Lancashire Brigade, supported by 200 of Thornycroft's mounted infantry and half a company of engineers up the brooding Spionkop Mountain. At 8.30 that night, the troops gathered at the rendezvous, a gully 12 kilometres to the southwest of Spionkop. Then they were off, the usual orderly confusion of a dark night march where men couldn't see their hands in front of their faces. They each carried a water bottle, field rations, a rifle and 150 rounds. General Woodgate led the way, even though Buller observed bitterly that he had two good legs but no head which is a fairly vicious thing to say about your subordinate. Unfortunately, that description would be quite accurate in a few hours. But right at the front marched members of the Eightlander Brigade, the English speakers of South Africa who had helped start this war by demanding that Kruger grant them suffrage. They were joined by 200 colonial soldiers, mostly English speakers who lived in Natal. These were Lieutenant Thornycroft's men and were to play a major role in this battle. Also present, a unit of Zulus who were allegedly merely guides, but fought alongside the British on this hill and died alongside them. Thornycroft was built like a large barrel, red-faced, 22 stone or around 140 kilograms. Somehow this large chap clambered over the rocks as the brigade made its way up the steep slopes of Spionkop. What awaited them on the ridge? Where were the Boers? Buller mused about the previous large-scale assault on a mountain at night, the infamous Battle of Majuba in the First Boer War, where the British were massacred due to a major miscalculation and a lack of knowledge about the summit. Spionkop was to be a violent echo, I'm afraid. Suddenly a dog, a spaniel, loped up, sniffing and snaffling. Thornycroft thought they should strangle the animal in case it barked. Instead, one of the troops made a lead out of a rifle strap and led it away. Still no sound from the Boers. Around 3am on the morning of 25th of January, the first troops crested the summit of Spionkop. Already the thick mist hovered, making the darkness more opaque. A German voice shouted, Verdar! Who goes there? And one of the officers shouted, Waterloo! And the men flung themselves flat. As the Boers opened fire with their Mausers, the flashes gave them away until the British heard the sounds of the rattle of bolts, which indicated the magazines were empty, and then he gave the order, fix bayonets, and his men charged, screaming, Majuba, Majuba. The Boers fled, but one man wasn't quick enough. A Zulu man working for the Boers on the summit, perhaps as a guide, had been bayoneted. Only ten British troops were wounded. A miracle! It's all so easy, they thought. The sappers or engineers who'd accompanied the unit now measured off 150 metres of trenches on what seemed in the mist to be just forward of the crest of the summit. 
pickaxes began to ring out as they dug defences. Then the sappers realised they had a problem. There was hard rock less than 14 centimetres from the surface, which could not be dug. Instead of ordering the men to help collect rocks to shore up the sides, which is what the Boers were used to doing, they presumed the battle virtually over and then did nothing. This was to be the troops' death sentence. Had they used rocks in the area to build proper fortifications, what happened next may have been avoided. Woodgate, meanwhile, had a cup of tea. The men relaxed, the mist was thick, and he sent Buller's secretary, a man by the name of Acor, back to General Warren with a note. Dear Charles, we got up about four o'clock and rushed the position. We have entrenched and are, I hope, secure, but fog is too thick to see. Thornycroft's men attacked in fine style. Three cheers had alerted Warren to their success earlier, and the artillery had fired a star shell to inform the general. Buller telegraphed the press at Pietermaritzburg and Lord Roberts in Cape Town, who then telegraphed Lansdowne back at Paul Mall in London, who sent a hand-delivered message to Queen Victoria before breakfast. Instant messages back to the Empire. All was well. Spion Corp, the key to Ladysmith, had fallen. The generals, the commanders, the queen, all were elated as they read their messages across the world, and the British troops lay in their shallow trench, waiting for their next orders. What all these famous VIPs didn't know was that Spionkorp was not a simple mountain. There are three parts to the summit, and the British, in the mist, had set up their trenches below two pieces of higher ground. Furthermore, the trenches had been built parallel to these high points, not at right angles, meaning they could be enfiladed, as it's called. Think of someone shooting along the entire length from the side instead of from the front. A nightmare awaited. By now, the Boer pickets who'd fled down the north slope reached the lager of General Skulkberger, four kilometres away, who was General Joubert's second-in-command, but was really taking orders from Louis Boerter. Boerter realised speed was of the essence. As Woodgate drank his tea, Boerter planned a counterattack. This time, the Boers had three different points of artillery which could be brought to bear on the summit of Spionkop. Boerter also had done what Woodgate hadn't. He had had a proper look at the mountain and knew there were two high points of significance that were not taken. One was called Conical Hill, north of the British position. There was a second high point called Allo Knoll, which brought the trench within long-range rifle fire. The Boers were spread out in a 20-kilometre arc along the Tugela, and Boerter had to get reinforcements to move fast. His orderlies galloped off to tell the artillery to bring their three Krupp field guns and two pom-poms into action at close range from the left, right and centre. Two large guns, the Kriosots, were ordered to fire from six kilometres away, and that, by the way, is within range. Boerter also knew his men would have to storm Spionkop, and he was worried. When Colenso had been fought in December, he'd called for his 4,000 men to storm Tabanyama, and only a few hundred had obeyed. What would happen this time, he thought to his civilian army. But cometh the hour, they say, and a commandant called Hendrik Prinsloor of the Carolina Commando rose to the occasion. Ninety of his men climbed the hill through the mist towards Conical Hill and what they called Allo Knoll. Hundreds of others in the Transvaal Commando then began to climb up towards the British position as well. It was eight o'clock in the morning of 24th of January. The mist began to clear from the ridge, and the sun was burning through as a forerunner to an extremely hot and humid, cloudless day in South Africa.
Danais Reitz then bears witness to the carnage. We should remember that he's only 17, but has already spent three months in the midst of a violent conflict. He and his colleagues filled the bandoliers from crates of ammunition on a wagon as shells began to arch overhead. They raced on their horses to the north slope of Spionkop, where hundreds of horses were tethered below. Above them, 400 Boers were climbing towards the British trenches. He writes, Many of our men dropped, but already the foremost were within a few yards of the rocky edge, which marked the crest. The soldiers were rising from behind their cover to meet the final rush. For a moment or two, there was confused hand-to-hand fighting. Then the combatants surged over the rim onto the plateau beyond, where we could no longer see them. Rates and his comrades began the deadly climb from behind these frontrunners and then discovered many of his compadres had paid the price and is shaken as he realizes many are his friends and even tent mates, he writes. Dead and dying men lay along the way. I came on the body of John Malherbe, our corporal's brother, with a bullet between the eyes. A few paces further lay two more dead men of my commando. Further on I found my tent mate, Poor Robert Reinecker, shot through the head, and not far off, El de Villiers, our corporal, dead. Higher up this Krieger, with a bullet through both lungs, he's still alive. Beyond him vaulted the force of my tent, shot through the chest, but smiling cheerfully. The British had caused some damage, but things were just getting started. The Boers were lying flat only a few yards from the British trench, and Rates is a short distance from the summit below. And now, Rates bumps into his brother, marching British prisoners of war back down the hill. Rates explains, Giving him a hurried handshake, I went forward to the firing line a few yards further on. Then Rates sees Charles Jeppy, his last surviving tentmate, alive. Then realises Jeppy's dead. Rates is shattered. His death affected me keenly, for we had been particularly good friends. Outwardly, he was a surly man, but he had shown me many a kindness since first we messed together on the Natal border. It was now nine o'clock, and the Boer guns were blazing from the three points onto the summit, ranging in on the British trench system, or rather their scratches on the surface. Simultaneously, the Boer fighters begin to wilt in the sun. Some even begin crawling back down the north side of Spionkorp. Others waited. But the horror of the British trench... The long, shallow, crescent-shaped trench, 15 metres from where Rates lay, hid a secret. This is the moment in time of a portent of things to come. The Western Front of 1914-18, to with its trench horrors. A new style of war featuring an invisible enemy firing from a distant hilltop. Here, at Spionkorp, as Thomas Packenham has noted, concentrated into an acre of trampled grass, was a combination of the old-style soldiers' battle, Pulped faces, headless chunks, men fighting hand-to-hand like animals. This Armageddon in the trenches under an African sun was also a precursor to the mud of Flanders. General Woodgate was no longer drinking tea. He was dying, hit by a Boer shrapnel. His second-in-command was also hit and severely wounded. The next-in-command, Major Massey, of the trench diggers or sappers, was then shot dead. So was the next-in-command, Captain Virtue, with their deaths, there were no other senior officers left alive on the summit. The Boers, who'd seized Conical Hill and Allo Knoll, were firing straight into the British trenches, which were far too shallow to do any good. It had been dug by around 20 sappers at dawn, while over a thousand men had lay around smoking and drinking. 
Had they all grabbed rocks and deepened their cover, things would have been different. But what do we know these years later and so far away? We have the luxury of hindsight. The Boers, on the other hand, were adept by now at building deep trenches surrounded by rocks. Well, let's be more accurate. The black workforce that moved with the Boers were adept at building deep trenches. One of the Boers' secret weapons in the Anglo-Boer War were black South Africans armed with spades. And later, the British would incarcerate tens of thousands of these black workers, along with the Boer women and children. At least 15,000 black South Africans died in this Boer War, most in the concentration camps. But we'll get to that part of the story later. Right now, Lieutenant Colonel Charlton in the Lancashire Fusiliers, who was lying prone in the grass and boulders on the right at the hill of Spionkorp, realised they need to storm Allo Knoll, which was strategically vital. Corporal Will McCarthy near him writes, I got into the trenches and lay down at the side of bodies. It was terrible, I can tell you, and it was enough to unnerve the bravest of men. The Boer gunners were still making merry. They had a massed enemy in their sights, and the result was carnage. Shallow trenches, high-powered shells, you do the maths. On the summit, the Boer troops now were unnerved. Many were lying face down only 30 metres from the British trench, and some were being hit by their own shrapnel. But it was their enemy who were in real shambles and really demoralised. The artillery was ripping them to pieces, and they could do nothing. Thornycroft, however, was still alive and then led a charge of 40 men to try and push the Boers back. He was forced down by the bullets and shells, and then found three officers wounded, but continuing to fire on the Boers. Then, one by one, these officers were killed. The description at times sounds like a hard-to-believe Hollywood movie epic. Junior officers standing and shouting, On men! and then falling dead. Finally, the first white handkerchiefs began fluttering over the British trench, and the Boers began taking prisoners. Thornycroft sprang forward, limping on his sprained ankle, and roared, I'm the commander here. Take your men back to hell, sir. There's no surrender. And the fluttering handkerchiefs disappeared. Meanwhile, General Warren, back at his HQ, called Three Tree Hill, had received a note that was strange. After the initial message from Woodgate indicating the Boers had fled, He'd told all and sundry that the Boers would now run away, that after Spionkorp was taken, there was no hope. Two hours later, he read a message sent to him from the summit, which outlined a somewhat different situation. It read, Reinforce at once, or all is lost, General dead. He forwarded that message to Buller, and ordered the Imperial Light Infantry, the 2nd Middlesex, and Dorsets to advance, but he was seriously confused. What was going on? Warren did have the presence of mind to order the reinforcements to carry sandbags, which Woodgate had decided to leave behind. Warren, though, had virtually no idea what was going on. The mist had lifted, but the fog of war hadn't. He still couldn't see Conical Hill and Allo Knoll, the most important strategic points in the battle. He didn't know where the Boers' guns were. Littleton, who was a few kilometres east, did see the Boers and began shelling Allo Knoll. The Boers there took casualties and were on the cusp of removing their guns and fleeing when Warren committed a major error and then ordered Littleton to cease firing on Knoll and concentrate elsewhere. Warren thought his men were in charge of the entire ridge. It was the Boers who breathed a sigh of relief when the shelling at the Knoll inexplicably stopped and they went back to their systematic shelling of the exposed summit. Buller was back at Mount Alice with his HQ staff 
and he was highly aware that things were falling apart. The war correspondents took turns to watch the corp through a powerful naval telescope, and the Times correspondent John Atkins writes, I shall always have it in my memory, that acre of massacre, that complete shambles, at the top of a rich green gully with cool granite walls, a way fit to lead to heaven. To me, it seemed that our men were all in a small square patch. I saw three shells strike a certain trench within a minute. The trench was toothed against the sky, the heavens. The trench rose up and moved forward. It was made of men. The teeth against the sky were men. They looked like a cornfield with a heavy wind sweeping over it from behind. Grimly, the British held on to the 200-metre-wide battlefield. No one on the British side had given much thought to what to do after seizing Spion Kop. Asked what his force should do next, Buller had answered dogmatically before the battle, It has got to stay there. It stayed there all right, stolid, immobile, absorbing and horrific beating. Many of the officers were killed, victims of the Victoria-era code that prohibited a gentleman from taking cover under fire. The men in the ranks, less hidebound and conventional, squirmed into every square inch of cover they could find in the rocky topsoil. Boer artillery shells dismembered entire files of soldiers where they lay, while those foolish enough to raise their heads off the ground were immediately shot dead by enemy snipers. Hundreds of men on both sides are now casualties, and we're not halfway. Forgive me dwelling on these moments. This battle is so important for many reasons. It was the last great battle of this war, but the first great battle of coming wars. Spion Corp featured Churchill, Gandhi, Boerter. This first great battle of the 20th century would be a precursor to many other dreadful events. It was a portent. We'll also hear more about Mahatma Gandhi's role next week, where his incredible personal courage in the midst of horrors is largely unknown. In fact, he goes on to attain the rank of Sergeant Major in the British Army and medals for his various roles. Of course, he eventually hands the medals back, saying he wants nothing to do with the oppressive British imperial system. But that's years in the future. Spion Corp left its mark on British consciousness, and to this day, football stadiums in England have their corps. Well, Liverpool's Anfield had one until 2010 when they moved. Sheffield Wednesday has a cop. Birmingham City's Spion Cop runs the entire length of the pitch like a trench. Leeds United has a cop. But it gets weirder when you consider other countries. In Holland, NSC Breda has a Spion Cop stand. Paris Saint-Germain has a cop. In Paris and Linfield in Ireland too. Many football fans in the 21st century would probably be shocked to learn where the name cop originates. And it's because of the shocking clash on a mountain outside Ladysmith that this historical resonance continues. We are day one into the battle. There are still more thrusts and parries to follow, including an incredible moment where the Boers retreat. The British fail to realize this, and after 16 hours fighting as the lone officer, Thornycroft's barrel-chested 22-stone frame collapses along with his will, and he orders his men off the mountain. But before that, Churchill and another reporter called Brook managed to climb to the summit, avoiding the Boer bullets and artillery shells. He finds Thornycroft and the survivors crying, wounded, screaming, hiding behind mutilated bodies of their comrades. Thornycroft tells Churchill he needs reinforcements immediately, and the two reporters rush back down the hill to tell 
General Warren's staff officer, someone called Captain Levita. Churchill says, For God's sake, Levita, don't let this be a second Majuba Hill. Get them reinforcements. When Warren hears this, he flies into one of his rages and screams, Who is this man? Take him away. Put him in arrest. After calming down, Warren says he is sending reinforcements. But are they enough? And will they be on time? We'll see next week what further trials and tribulations await these poor men and the women back at the field hospital. That's in episode 20 next week. Until then, please remember to have a look at our website, abwarpodcast.com, or the Facebook page, Anglo Boer War Podcast, or follow me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Goodbye. Een zonder gedaan langs die moeier vierste waal, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O breng mij terug naar die oud Transvaal, daar waar mijn zare woont.